I joined the Beverly Hills Tennis Club because Hank Greenberg was a member. It's the only reason I joined. I don't play tennis. Playing with my dad. He taught me everything. When I was down, he lifted me up. And his belief in me taught me to believe in myself. And that, that meant everything. Inside a can of Old Bay, a dock worker from Locust Point, a doctor from Sinai, a hairdresser from Patterson Park, and a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy and a lacrosse star for Boys Latin, a Catholic priest and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. He built himself a homemade sliding pit. He would run down the alley, make a left-hand turn, as if rounding the base behind the house and practice his sliding in the sliding pit in the backyard. The mother's cluck, poor Mrs. Greenberg, young Henry doesn't want to do anything but play ball. Her son was a no-good Nick. Near-do-well. He didn't want to go to school. In Jewish families, you don't earn a living by playing kids' games. Marbles, spin the dreidel. You're going to go to school. You're going to be a doctor, a lawyer. I always felt that baseball players were just bums. They're just something that you don't make a living playing chasing a little white ball. My grandfather was a somewhat stern authoritarian. Only one of the four children disappointed my grandparents, of course, and that was my dad, who dropped out to be a ball player. Time it is, I'm packing and go. 
about the show experience of being a witness to glory. And that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of all these islands, South Kagalagi, Pat Man, Pat Podcast Machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you steam heads? What's juicy? Welcome back to the dojo for yet another edition of the baseball podcast show spanning the globe. Happy New Year, freaks. I hope all of you made it to 2024 relatively unscathed and still alive and I can't help but feel hopeful and optimistic about the upcoming year I'm in a really good place right now but I don't struggle believe me some people have it really tough right now and I'm an empathetic soul we all deal with challenges in our own way it's a new year a new day and I'm here and I'm with you all the way Maybe you can find some solace in the show, as it is my mission in life to spread the gospel of baseball to every square foot of this planet. Well, except maybe South Dakota. Nah, what, what, what? In the almost two years of doing this show, I've never had one listener ever in the state of South Dakota. <laughs> what, what, what? In all of the United States, shit, practically the whole Western Hemisphere. No, for real, I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. From Canada, Alaska, North America, the Caribbean, almost all of South America, they've been exposed to this show, but that goddamn South Dakota, it's a huge black hole in my globe. <laughs> they don't want any parts of me. <laughs> if I wasn't laughing at myself, I would literally be crying. I just can't imagine Imagine anything happening there that is more exciting than me. It really makes me want to quit. So, look, my life ain't perfect either, apparently. Let's keep pushing together, freaks. And if I don't get at least one goddamn listener out of South Dakota this year, maybe we just end this. I'm tired of looking at that goddamn hole. Why, why do we have two Dakotas anyway? Seems like a lot of real estate for two states with a million people combined, right? So, look. Check that out. I'm thinking my life was great, and then my eye got a glimpse of that globe again, and now I'm salty. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's your boy, Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Okay, so where we at now? This is BKP show number 113, and it's now week eight. Of the Major League Baseball offseason. So, officially two months since the Texas Rangers took the crown and now reign as our champions. And this is the very first hot stone report of 2024. And just a very few moves of notes since I dropped that Kopach pod on Friday, just four days ago. The Boston Red Sox made a couple of moves this week as they cut ties with Southpaw Chris Sale, sending him to the Atlanta Braves for infielder Vaughn Grissom. 
Okay, so let's talk about what the Braves are getting out of this deal before we hit on Boston. While Sale may not be the perennial Cy Young contender he once was throughout the past 10 years, he, he did appear to be relatively healthy when he came off the IL this past August. Of course, stress reaction to his left scapula. He had 20 starts and posted a 4.3 ERA, but in the nine starts he made after August, he had a 3.92 ERA. He finished averaging a tick over 11 strikeouts for nine. And I don't know, you know, as someone who saw him pitch against my team a couple times, he really seemed like he was starting to turn that corner. And certainly, there is an injury risk there to be considered. The 34-year-old had TJ surgery in 2020. He fractured his rib cage and right wrist in 2022. But the Braves brass is confident that this is probably the first normal off-season sale has had in a while. And they're confident they can protect him during the season. And he will surpass the 180-inch pitch he logged last year. Before all these setbacks, he was an image of stability and consistency. He was a top six in AL Cy Young voting seven straight seasons from 2012 to 2018. Sale is owed $27.5 million in 2024. And he has a club option for 2025. Boston will send a... Well, they're going to send a suitcase with $17 million in cash to Atlanta as part of that deal. The left-handers 2025 option will automatically be vested if he were to finish in the top 10 in the Cy Young balloting. And he doesn't end the 2024 season on the IL. So, with this acquisition... The Braves' projected rotation consists of Max Reed and Spencer Strider at the top, Chris Sale and Charlie Morton in the middle with Bryce Elder on the back end. And I got to tell you, if they stay healthy, I like this rotation. I, I believe an organization like Atlanta is quite honestly perfect for Sale at this point in his career. Uh, that club has a great infrastructure and decision makers and the pitch. Pitching development chops to pull this off. He has an offensive and defensive juggernaut behind him. I know some Braves fans are a little like meh on this move, but I like this move a lot if Chris Sale can stay healthy. What? Why are you looking at me rolling your eyes? I do. I think this could be a coup. Look, I saw everyone tripping over boners about Tyler Glass now signing an extension with L.A. And now... They are the bunny ears here. Prohibitive destroyer of worlds for the next six years. And don't get me wrong, Glass is good, but he pitched 120 innings last year. The the most he's ever done. Only 20 more than Sale did last year. In fact, Sale's 100 innings pitch last year would be the third most in Glass now's career. My point is not to put starters down because they don't amass innings anymore. But, you know, that's my point. The, the game has changed so much that if you can get Sale to give you 150 or some innings, that should get him around 100, 174, 175 strikeouts. Let the bully do what the bully does. Bridge the fifth to the eighth. Sales should be very manageable and very productive. In other words, five and two-thirds innings pitch to, to six complete, eight to ten strikeouts a game. With that offense, I think he's going to find. Now, Let's talk about Boston. Let's be honest. They kept this move quiet and close to the best as I hadn't heard any buzz about the Sox trading sale 
all winter. That's what, you know, I mean, that's why I love trades so much than just watching guys take the money on the market. Trades are like these insight into the strategical minds of these organizations. You really get an idea of what teams covet and what they view as expendable. And I had no clue they would move sales, especially since Red Sox chief baseball officer uh, Roger Breslow has made overtures since October about his ambitions of bringing in some arms to that rotation. In Grissom, they got a 23-year-old promising young young player to eventually match up with hotshot shortstop prospect Marcelo Meyer. I figure Von Grissom will probably get time at second base. And, you know, the rest of these, you know, blossoming players on a strong Red Sox farm that are coming up. Grissom's first home run, and he hit one of his, he hit his first major league career hit at home run against the Sox in Fenway Park back in 2022. So, they knew about him. They had a good feeling. The kid has a nice high ceiling. Could be a fixture in the B-Town for at least the next six controllable years. He's a guy who was just lost in that shuffle of stars they got over there in Atlanta. And he's totally blocked in that stacked Braves infield. And he should be an everyday player. This is a great move for his career. Last year at Gwyn at Triple A, Grissom batted 330, had a 419 OBP, 501 slugging percentage, eight dogs, 13 stolen bases. That was in 15 attempts. And he had a 66 to 56 walk to strikeout ratio. So I think both teams did good on this trade based on where the two teams are right now. And based on what their immediate needs are. So, with former World Series champion Sale quietly exiting Boston State's left, the Red Sox immediately went out and secured the services of free agent right-handed pitcher Lucas Giolotto with a two-year $38.5 million deal that includes an opt-out after the 2024 season. Okay, in a three-year stretch... From 2019 to 2021, Gilo, Gilodo was uh, Lito was one of the more dependable arms. He went 29 and 21 with a 3.47 ERA over 17 72 starts on that span, and he held opposing batters to a 207 batting average. Now, his last two years have been mediocre at best, but the Red Sox believe they can fix him. The right-handed pitcher gave up. 44 home runs, which is a shit ton for anyone. And especially going into Fenway Park to face AL East lineups. Those 44 home runs were the second most in the majors last year behind only Lance Lynn, who was signed by the Cards a few weeks back. The Sox, they were in on Yamamoto. And it's a huge cavern of difference between Yashinobu and Giolito, for sure. Plus, the this gives Boston a rotation of all right-handers, considering, you know, the left-handed bats the Yankees stockpiled on. It would behoove Boston to be in on another pitcher, preferably a lefty. They went into the offseason looking for two left-handers, and there are three pretty good ones out there that I expect the Sox to go after. As the Dodgers and Phillies 
have been the two biggest offseason spenders so far, which yeah, makes total sense as big market teams, but the next three biggest spenders have been the Snakes, Royals, and the Cards. And for the most part, that was due to the extraordinary circumstances surrounding Yamamoto and the Unicorn, which most of the high rollers were in on, if not both, you know, they were in on one, if not both of those Japanese superstars. Boston was one of those teams, Will and Shinnable, and we know the Giants were on a show, both New York teams, the Cubs, the Angels, the Jays, and that put many of those teams in a hold where they had to wait and see how their luck turned out in the show and yo sweepstakes tour. Now, now that we all know where they go and came up short in their bids to the Dodgers, I think a few of those teams have regrouped and came up with a pivot to fill needs. Not all those teams, but I feel like we could see some aggression on the market by the Giants, the Northsiders, and Boston in particular. So, with a rotation of all right-handers, like I said, don't be surprised to see them go after and sign one of these pretty good southpaws available. Now, I don't get any sense whatsoever that Blake Snell has any desire to come back to the East Coast or the American League East for that matter. So I don't really see him as a possibility. I could be wrong, but I'd be shocked. So that leaves Jordan Montgomery and Japanese import Shota Iminaga. And I'm going to tell you, I think the Red Sox will target both of them. And I just feel like eventually they're going to sign Iminaga. I'm kind of surprised the Rangers have not locked Montgomery up by now, considering their rotation next year looks like a mass unit, and that should have been their number one priority, in my opinion, if they weren't in on show or yo. And I really feel like they need to at least re-sign him to repeat. Now, every day that Gumby is still out there available, it hurts Texas's chance of retaining him. That young, blossoming Reds team picked up free agent right-handed pitcher Frankie Montas this past Saturday on a one-year, $16 million contract. And the Reds have been a team that has invested in themselves this year, spending about uh, $105.25 million on the free agent contract so far in relievers Buck Farmer, Emilio Pagan, Nick Martinez, and infield bad Jaimeer Candelario. And now Frankie as an addition to the rotation here. A rotation that is loaded with starters that do not have two years of full Major League service time. I'm talking about Hunter Green, Graham Ashcroft, Andrew Abbott, Nick Lodolo, and Brandon Williamson, and maybe Nick Martinez if he claims one of those spots in the rotation. Uh, Look, Montas is 31 years old. He's a decent pitcher, 37-35 career record. Only surpassed 100 innings three times in his eight-year career. 3.90 career ERA, 3.79 FIP, and a 1.30 WHIP. And that's what you get nowadays for $16 million, Frankie Montas. For 19 and a quarter, you you can have Lucas Giolito. I mean, am I the only one that sees an out-of-control market? I told you in the beginning of the hot stove period, uh, people are going to be overpaying this year. His last two years in the Bronx have been marred by injury and not very memorable. And his last full season was his career year in 2021, in which he went 13-9 per Oakland with a 3.37 ERA, 1.18 whip, and 207 strikeouts, and 187 innings pitched. In a pretty 
you know, let's face it, pitcher-friendly ballpark in the mausoleum out in Alameda County. But he never quite bowed his bearings with the Yankees, making only eight starts in 2022, and his 6.35 ERA, bowling shoe ugly, 1.54 whip. And, you know, like Sale, if he's healthy, he can help you, but his skill set is nowhere close to a Chris Sale. The Reds missed out on bringing Sonny Gray back. They whipped on a reunion with Wade Miley. They also had interest in trading for Tyler Glass now. And this is where you end up. I, I don't know. I feel like they could have done better with that much money, but it's only a one-year deal, which makes sense, you know, for both of these guys, actually. So, just a few moves made in four days that I was off the air. I expect the hot stove to continue to put out pies and delicious breads for the next few weeks. And BKP is going to be there every week in the offseason, all the way up to the opening day of the 2024 season, to keep you seam heads abreast of all the goings-ons in the free agent and trade market here on Backwards K-Pod. Hot Stove Report at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Okay, so with that being said, I put the first hot stir report of the new year in the books with a backwards K next to it. I'm ready to clear this platform here at Terrapin Station. Get you straggling cements. Left on the platform to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye. As I load up our time travel choo-choo to Ben Baseball. It's time and space. As I will be setting our time and destination for January 1st. 1911 Greenwich Village in New York City as we will bear witness to the birth and the rise of baseball's first Jewish superstar, Hank Greenberg. So, as I look to the west of Terrapin, I see our beautifully manicured baseball field with players on it getting ready. The pitcher, the pitcher appears to have completed his warm-up tosses as the catcher throws down a second base. The umpire is just going to play ball, and the infielders throw that ball around, and that's my cue to call all aboard. And let's get you nerds squared away and ready to make this adventure trip with me. So, hurry, hurry, step right up. We have room for everyone. Make yourself comfortable, take off your shoes, open your kimonos, whatever you need to do, we don't judge. While I traverse time, space and time, I need you to understand that we will be talking about some hard truths this week where the mindset of the country was New Year's Day 1911. And I know there are some who think we shouldn't acknowledge the history of America's troubled past and their hang-ups over race, religion, gender, sexuality, since day one of the Puritan prudes who came over here and landed on this continent and dreamed of one day having a nation of citizens who lived and lived only as they did. These are indisputable facts. And here at Backwards K-Pod, I don't, I don't, I don't duck and dodge history. I'm also, I'm not woke I don't believe in the suppression of words. So, fair warning, some slurs may be quoted here. I try to take you into the moment as deep as I can with every story. And there are elements to this story that, that aren't pretty. And the way he was treated. 
Now, Hank put up with a lot of shit as the first Jewish superstar in baseball. Not only was the country reeling from the Great Depression during his era, his era, but that piece of trash Hitler was being all, you know, Hillary and shit. Anti-Semitism wasn't the only... Well, it wasn't only occurring in Germany and Eastern Europe. It was going on here in our own country. Henry Ford, the greatest automobile producer of his day, who ran his operations out of Detroit, Michigan, the same city where Hank played, was as anti-Semitic as they come. Yes, his car would change the course of America and the world, but he was as vile and disgusting as they come. Especially when he opened a book called The International Jew, and which, much like Hitler was doing all the way across the Atlantic, he blamed and scapegoated the Jewish community for all of the planet's ills of today. It was not unusual to hear Catholic preachers on the radio openly opining words of unadulterated hate towards the religion in that community. One night in Chicago, in a game versus the White Sox, the Sox bench jockeys were giving it hard to hang. Something bad. After the game, Hank walked into the White Sox clubhouse and a hush falls over the locker room as he lets them know he's angry about that racist razzing and he asked aloud if anyone had the balls to admit they said it. Who was over here calling me a Christ killer? I heard Sheeny Kike. I heard it all. Now, who said it? Cat got your tongue? You guys are real fucking quiet now. Nobody said it, right? That's what I thought. I'll see you boys tomorrow. If you say it again, we'll see what happens. And that was forever. The end of the White Sox disparaging Hank's religion aloud in front of him. One White Sox player said Hank was so angry that day, he may have literally ripped someone's head apart with his bare hands. And the White Sox players had reason to fear him. Greenberg was a dude. Like, he was massive for his day. Especially for a man of his religious beliefs. Six foot two, 210 pounds of Bronx toughness. Much like Shelly Otani has shattered the stereotypical identity today of Japanese ballplayers with his size. It's the same thing. As hard as it here, as hard as it is to hear this for some, there, there weren't a lot of Jews running around as big as Hank Greenberg. It's just one of the reasons he was like a rock star in his community. He was a real-life superhero for Jewish baseball fans to rally around, taking on the bigots, taking on Hitler ideology, representing the Star of David with dignity. What we would call today protecting the shield, right? And Hank never considered himself a religious man. Far from it. In fact, he hated how religion divided people. But he was a spiritual man. And he knew his importance and value in the Jewish community. And he knew his tribe was always watching and expecting him to do right by their culture. Which he always tried to do. Not because he was bound by his religious beliefs to do so, but because he believed in right and wrong. And he knew 
that his profile had credibility in his community, especially to young Jewish boys as they were always watching, admiring, and looking up to him. He absolutely abhorred racism. One day in Forbes Field in 1947 while playing for the Pirates, he's playing the Dodgers. And Jackie Robinson smacks a base hit line drive into the outfield. As Jackie is rounding first, determining if he's going to try for a double, he violently collides with Heck. Which, that must have felt like running full speed into a redwood tree. After scrambling on his knees to get back to the bag at first, Jackie sits there for a few seconds. He's, he's trying to get his scrambled brain to work again. And he looks up at a concerned Hank staring back at him with howls of laughter and jeers echoing throughout the Pittsburgh stands. Jackie? Jackie! I'm sorry, man. I didn't see you until too late. And at this time, Jackie is looking at the white player warily. As, you know, Jackie did with most white players in those early years, especially his rookie year. And he's trying to conceal his anger and slight embarrassment and he's asking himself, was that my fault? Because I had my head down? Or did this son of a bitch blindside me? And he lifts his head and he looks into the stands and he sees all the Pirates fans laughing at his expense. And Hank says to him, Oh, don't listen to them, Jackie. You're doing great, Rook. You belong here. Don't let a bunch of idiots bring you down. You keep pushing. He then pulls Jackie up. Swats him on the rear end, as in, you're okay. And a confused Jackie stands on first base, gritting his teeth so as not to smile. And Jackie would recount years later that Hank Greenberg was the first white ball player from an opposing team to openly treat him respectfully. Any list of the great sluggers in Detroit Tigers history must surely include Hey, despite him losing four years of his prime to service in World War II, he's still put together one of the best 13-year careers the game has ever seen. He made a serious run at Babe Ruth's single-season home run record in 1938. He led Detroit to four World Series, winning two of them. And his 1.017 OPS was the fifth highest in the history of baseball at the time of his retirement behind only a group of guys named Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Ted Williams, and Jimmy Fox. And here we are, folks, bursting out of that last interdimensional portal and straight into the dawning of a new year, January 1st, 1911, 113 years ago. Greenwich Village, New York City, where his parents, David Greenberg and Sarah Schwartz, Jewish immigrants from Romania, who met after immigrating to America, they married in 1906, they've just had, they've just rung in the new year with the birth of their third child, Henry Benjamin Greenberg. And the parents had originally named him Hyman Greenberg. But the man filling out his birth certificate had never heard such an odd name, and he filled the paperwork out with the name Henry. Hank had an older brother, Ben, an older sister, Lillian, and eventually the younger brother, Joe, would be born to round out the Greenberg unit. 
within time, David Greenberg moved his family out of Greenwich Village and into a more spacious house in the Bronx. And across the house from his house were the baseball fields at Cortona Park. And this is where young Henry fell in love with the game of baseball. And get this. Yeah, we did the Sandy Kovacs last week. The great Jewish pitcher who ever lived. Probably the greatest. They both grew up in New York City. He admired his hero, Hank. And there are so many parallels between these two men. They, you know, Like I said, they both grew up in New York City. They both realized their position in life in front of their community when they played. And they had an obligation to do the right Jewish thing for Yom Kippur. And another similarity they had was like Sandy Kopax Hank's favorite sport, the one he excelled at the most when he was young while attending James Monroe High School was actually basketball. He was a stud on the soccer pitch and in track and field as well as baseball. He really wasn't a fan of soccer, but I'm sorry, a fan of football, but he tried out nonetheless just for the challenge and he wound up catching a touchdown pass in the season's final game. And eventually, baseball scouts begin to encroach on the promising young kid. The Yankees, along with the Senators and Pittsburgh Pirates, they begin sniffing around as fire hydrant. In fact, the Yankees are very interested. So much so, they sent team scout Paul Kinchel out to fluff him up, take him to a meal, then a game at Yankee Stadium. So, of course, Hank agrees, excited that the mighty New York Yankees are interested in him to play for them. The two enjoy a nice meal together, and Critchell is impressed with the young Greenberg. He takes him to the house that the, that, uh, the, that Ruth built, and they sit the very first row along the first baseline. And as Hank is watching batting practice, he couldn't help but marvel at Lou Gehrig's size and magnificence with a bat. And he says to the scout, as Greenberg watches Lou take the field. Man, he is really, really good. And then he becomes very quiet, just watching and thinking to himself, there's no way I'm ever going to take his job. And the scout, sensing that Hank was all of a sudden getting called to the idea of playing for the Yankees, he leans over and tells the kid, don't worry, he's washed up. In a few years, you'll be the Yankees' first baseman. And Hank knew the scout was delusional and the Yankees wasn't the right fit for him. And I told you last week how Giants manager John McGraw was always on the lookout for like the next Jewish drawing card in New York City. He gives Hank a look just as the Giants did with Kopax years later. And like Kopax, the Giants are less than blown away by Greenberg and his abilities. McGraw saw a tall, awkward kid that would probably never make it to the pros. Little did he know, the right fit was just around the corner as Gene, I'm sorry, Jean Dubac got Greenberg to sign with Detroit in September of 1929. 
Greeny's first year pro ball was 1930 Class C Piedmont League for the Raleigh Capitals. At the young age of 19, he puts together a solid season that saw him at 319 with 19 dongs and 122 games at first. He also spent part of that summer with the Hartford Senators of the Class A Eastern League getting into 17 games. After which, the second division Tigers wanted to get a look at the strapping kids, so they called up Greenberg for the final three weeks of games on the Major League schedule. He makes his big league, big league debut versus the Yankees at Navin Field, and he popped up to the second baseman. And it was a lonely first year pro ball for Henry. He was often the victim of Jew baiting, even from some of his teammates. During batting practice one afternoon, pitcher Phil Page called Hank a goddamn Jew after Greenberg lined a comebacker that struck Page in the knee. But he also had teammates like Schoolboy Rowe and Billy Rogel who were always encouraging the young Henry. Rogel once sneered, go out and outplay these bastards. He had solid campaigns the next two years, playing for the Evansville Hubs and the Beaumont Exporters and Class B&A respectively, before finally making it to the big club for good in 1933 under manager Bucky Harris. Detroit sputtered along, finishing in fifth with a 75 and 79 record. Hank's first came home run and came in Detroit off of Senators pitcher Earl Whitehall on May 6th. He was beginning to fill out physically the 6'4, 215 pounds, and he was figuring out his stroke, finishing with a 301 batting average, 12 home runs, and 87 rips. In 1934, the Tigers. And Greenberg, they have a breakthrough season under new player manager Mickey Cochran. The club won the first American League pennant since 1909. Greenberg led the junior circuit in doubles with 63, home runs with 26, 139 RBI, and his 339 average to boot. He was quickly becoming the most feared bat in a lineup that already featured Goose Goslin and Charlie Garrison. And that was the first year that Greenberg was faced with the dilemma of whether or not he should play on Rosh Hashanah, which fell on September 10th back then. In the past, Greenberg had never hesitated to play baseball on the Sabbath, but the high holy days were another matter. Uh, another matter. In 1933, he had abstained from playing on both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. As the calendar turned to September 1934, the Tigers were in first place, but could feel the relentless Yankees breathing down their necks. Many Tigers fans wanted Hank to make an exception to play on Rosh Hashanah. And after much reflection, and even consulting a rabbi, Greeny decides to play the game that day. And it was one of those defining moments of a career as he homered twice, leading the Bengals to a 2-1 victory. Ten days later, the Detroit had wrapped up the AL pennant. Greenberg did decide to take off for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the Jewish faith, laying a foundation of example that Kofas would follow suit in Game 1 of the 1965 World Series. Popular syndicated newspaper poet Edgar Guest 
He penned an ode to Greenberg in the Detroit newspaper, ending with the line, We shall miss him on the infield, and we shall miss him at the bat. But he is true to his religion, and I honor him for that. And like I told you at the beginning of all this, Greenberg would be the first to admit he never strongly identified himself as a Jew. But every day, opposing bench jockeys and certain bands, they never let him forget his Jewishness. Hank would later say he sometimes felt the pressure of being Jewish on the ball field. I mean, how the hell would there not be? Every day, the opposing teams, the players, the bands, they litter the field with slurs like Jew bastard, C.D. Kike. It used to make my blood boil. Sometimes I just wanted to run into the stands and beat the shit out of all of them. In the World Series, they squared off versus the Cards for the first time, as D2's teams have squared off in the Paul Classic three times in the game's history. It was a tough series for Detroit, and I covered this series in the Gas House Gang back in Season 1 of BKP. The Tigers would fall in seven games, but Hammer and Hank, as the boys were now calling him, he was a beast in his first World Series, with nine hits, one homer, and seven RBI, and a three twenty-one batting average. With equal ports, power at the plate, and crowd appeal at the gate, Hank was becoming the toast of the Motor City, and affectionate nicknames were soon to follow, like Hammer and Hank, Greeny, King Kong, The Big Moose, and Lanky. Baseball was experiencing a resurgence in the Motor City, and Greenberg was leading the way. In 1935, the Tiger, Tigers finally win their first World Series of franchise history, even though they did it without the, without the services of their superstar. Greenberg led the American League in home runs with 36 and 170 RBIs, but he injured his wrist sliding into home plate in Game 2 of the Paul Classic, and he sat out for the rest of the series. The Tigers were able to conquer their, uh, keep their composure, conquer their opponents without their leader, and they went on to beat the Cubs in six games. Any chance that Detroit had repeating in 1936 was dashed when Hank was... Uh, he re-injures the wrist early in the season, and Mickey Cochran, the heart and soul of the ball club, he suffered a nervous breakdown, ending his career. But Greedy comes back hard in 1937 as he bangs out 40 bombs. He knocks in 183 runs, coming in with coming within two of Lou Gehrig's AL record of 185. But it was 1938. That forever put Hank into the baseball consciousness. All summer long, he chased Ruth's vaunted single-season record of 60 home runs. After a two-homer game September 27th, in the second half of a doubleheader versus the St. Louis Browns, Greenberg finds himself needing only two blasts to tie the mighty babe with five games left to play. And while many baseball historians have created this narrative that anti-Semitism was the reason for Hank coming up short to the record, Hank said to Ira Burkow, 
the author of his autobiography. That's horseshit. The boys came right after me. I went 5 for 18 in those five games that had four walks, which was all par with my pace all year. I tell you what killed me. Bob Feller struck me out three times in one of those games. The final game of the season was in Cavernous Municipal Stadium versus the Cleveland Indians. I hit one pretty good, but it banged off the fence. As twilight was setting in, remember, no lights back then, freaks. Umpire George Moriarty turns to me and he says, Hank, I'm sorry, I gotta call this game. This is as far as I can go. And an exhausted and disappointed Greenberg looks at the umpire and replies, That's okay, George. This is as far as I'm going to. Greenberg thrived despite the raging anti-Semitism that was scourging the planet of this day. It was 1938, and Hank was establishing a legacy that had him flirting with the immortals. A World War do-over was the last thing on the Big Moose's mind. At first, he really didn't pay much attention to the rise of Hitler. In his words, I was just a stupid ball player, too dumb to read a newspaper and realize the political going-ons of the time. Of course, as the summer went deeper and deeper, and Hitler's philosophies were resonating around the world, I began to despise that Nazi bastard. And every time I hit a home run that year, it felt like I was homering against Hitler, and all of his disgusting words for me and all of the Jews around the world. He finished the season with a 312 batting average, 33 home runs, 112 RBI, which by his standards was an off year. In 1939, Hanks faces an ultimatum by the owner, Walter Briggs, whom Greeny was really never close to. And it was this, moved to the outfield, switched positions with Rudy York. At first, who, you know, basically he looked like he played in the outfield with cast iron skillets attached to his hands. Switch with Rudy York or else. Ah, the good old reserve clause days. After accepting the move, Hank led the AL in home runs with 41, 150 RBIs, slugging percentage of 670, and doubles as he won his second AL MVP and led the Tigers to their third pennant in seven years. Despite 375 with 6 RBI, Detroit loses the World Series game at 7 to the Cincinnati Reds. And then, like so many star athletes of the day, Greenberg was off to war. Whether or not he would be drafted was up in the air for 7 months, mainly due to his flat feet. And finally, he received the word that he would have to report for duty on May 7, 1941. He did begin the season in Tiger's gear in his final game. One day before entering the service, he rose to the occasion by slamming two home runs as the Tigers beat the Yankees 7-1 in the recently renamed Briggs Stadium on May 6th. The following morning, 
Greenberg was inducted into the Army at Fort Custer, Michigan, 5th Division, 2nd Infantry Anti-Tank Company. About three months after he joined, Congress passed a law dictating that men 28 years or older were not to be drafted. So, it appears maybe Sergeant Greenberg has dodged a bullet, he's given his discharge, and he heads home to Detroit to get ready for the 1942 baseball season. That date was December 5th, 1941. Well, all that changes two days later, as the Empire of Japan attacks the Pacific Fleet, and all day, Hank was listening to the coverage of the historical event on his transistor radio, and he was good mad. The world was going crazy. First Hitler, now this. And he decides the country needs him. They still need him. And he enlists in the Air Corps, becoming the first player in the majors to to enlist. And with all the uncertainty in the world, Greeny wasn't sure when or if he would ever put on the Tigers uniform again. But he told the Detroit press, the country is in trouble, and there's only one thing to do, return to service and fight. I've not been called back. I'm going back on my own accord. Baseball is out of the picture right now. I don't know if I will ever return. <laughs> what a badass. He's then sent to OCS, Officer Candidate School, and he is commissioned as a first lieutenant upon graduation. He spent time in the China-Burma-India Theater of Battle before receiving his discharge again on June 4th, 1945. For Greenberg, his time spent defending his country in World War II was life-changing. By the time he returns to the States, he begins to realize there are more important things in life than baseball, as he had matured into a man. Years later, he would write, It was a long hitch. It was a wonderful experience. I can't say it was enjoyable insofar as we were deprived of our liberties. But considering that so many men had suffered much greater hardships than I had, and quite a few of the boys lost their lives, I felt lucky to come back in one piece. So, I tell you what folks, let's stick a pin in this story right here. We've been talking about the amazing baseball journey of Hank Greenberg this week, who is celebrating his 111th birthday. He has established himself quite a legacy in an era dominated by Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And even though he isn't a religious practicing Jew, he feels it his obligation to defend the honor of himself and his people against the anti-Semitic trash holes of the day, including Adolf Hitler. He joins the army and is discharged two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. He becomes the first Major League Baseball player to enlist for action. He's also the first Major Leaguer to return to baseball after the war in Europe ends. And that's his discharge in the summer of 1945. And that's where we are, Preach. When we come back, I'll bring you the second and third acts of this amazing man. 
and it's baseball story. BRB in your brakes. See you on the other side of the dark side of the moon. Don't go anywhere. Support the grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball pod. Backwards K Pod at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network.
down center field. Robert on the run into the alley, sliding dry. Robert, oh my goodness, Luis Robert Jr. somehow got to that ball to make an absolutely ridiculous catch. Oh, what a play! Luis Robert with one of the best catches you'll ever see. Yeah, I don't even know what you can say about that other than you got two outfielders coming together in the same spot and Robert was committed and focused. Sends the center, Friedel going back. Way back, leaps at the wall. just took a home run away from Ramon Laureano. What could have been a 3-1 game, we are tied at one on a phenomenal play by T.J. Friedel, and that is why you need that kid in center field. And it'll be uh, Machado who leads it off for San Diego in the eighth. High drive. Oh! Back goes Marsh looking up, and that ball is very gone. Manny Machado puts the Padres on top for the three. to be consciously pitched around at times in his major league debut. Oh, goodness! That ball had a family! In game two, his first home run! A two-run bomb! Yeah, that wasn't just a home run. That ball almost exited the ballpark. The hardest hit ball by a red this year. That was nearly 115. It brought everyone to their feet. Prodigious power. Oh my goodness. How about the rookies? Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Geen, executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. 
crushing big bowls of shellfish, or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com Greenberg is up. Greenberg was out yesterday observing John Kipper and I believe, undoubtedly, Hank's big bat was missed out here yesterday. Strike two called on Hank as Curve over the outside corner. Broker standing back behind the rubber, adjusting his cap, expectorating a bit. Now he's climbing up on the hill, throwing the rubber, ready to pick. Here it is. Greenberg single to left. between these two baseball legends. And when we last left off, Greenberg is a 10-year MLB veteran. He's 30 years old now. And he's cementing a legacy and what looks to be one of the greatest careers there's ever been. As a proud man of Jewish faith, although he's really not religious, 
you know, like this practicing Jew. He has faced the share of prejudice on the ball fields, but he has never seen anything like the arrogance and ignorance of Adolf Hitler. When the country drafts him for his service in 1941, he's ready to put it on the line for the country, and he literally wants to be the man who finds Hitler and disposes of him, man to man. However, later that year, Congress enacts a law forbidding the U.S. military to draft men 28 years and over. He's relieved of his duty. He's sent back home December 5th, 1941. Two days later, the Empire of Japan nearly destroys the Pacific Fleet in one fell swoop with a daring and well-executed attack on Pearl Harbor. And Hank gets mad, something but good. He drives down to the recruiter office in his town and he re-enlists the fight. The first player in the majors to volunteer. After seeing combat in India and China, the go-lucky boy from Brooklyn who only cared about baseball was maturing, watching his brothers in arms fall around him. When the war in Europe is resolved in the summer of 1945, he is discharged and returned to America. He looks forward to returning to baseball, but World War II has taken three prime seasons from him. Actually, four. No one has ever made a successful return to the majors after such a long time away from the game. Some of the Detroit sports scribes and fans were certainly hopeful, but understandably skeptical about his return and how productive he could be. Hank himself admitted he wasn't absolute in his belief that he would be able to return to his love and play amongst the elite. Well, all the lingering doubts were put to rest when Hank makes his triumphant return on July 1st, 1945 before a sold-out house at Briggs Stadium when he drops Dong to cap off a 9-5 victory over the Philadelphia A's. And with the Tigers embroiled in a heated petty race with the Yankees, his 1945 signature moment came September 30th, the final contest of the season. Greedy steps into the box in the rain and he hits a game-winning grand salami versus the Browns at Sportsman Park to win the American League pennant. And as he's rounding the beast on that day in the rain, he remembers how quiet the Browns fans were and he couldn't tell if this moment was real or if he was going to be waking up soon from like this beautiful dream. By virtue of that memorable blast, Greeny and his Tigers had the honor of facing the Chicago Cubs in the World Series for the second time in Hank's career. If you remember the Tigers squared off versus Chicago in 1935 World Series 10 years earlier and Hank wasn't a factor in that Tigers championship as he was nursing that sore wrist. So he makes up for that lost series by leading the Tigers to a seven-game world title win while hitting the team's only two home runs in the series and collecting seven RBI. The following season was a mixed bag for Greenberg. 
while he led the league in home runs with 44 and RBIs with 127. He also hit a career low, 277 at the age of 35. And the Tigers felt like his better days were behind him. And Hank couldn't argue the point as he began to spend more and more time on the trainer's table for various aches and pains. He felt like he was a borrowed time, and he knew he was no longer the hitter that he used to be. On January 18, 1947, he sold to the Pittsburgh Pirates for $75,000. 75 dollars 75 in 1947, and has the spending power of a little more than a million dollars in the 2024 economy. Hank contemplated retirement, figuring he was getting too old for the ballplayer's life. And he also began thinking about Forest Field and their death valley of an outfield for right-handed hitters, which we talked about in our Forbes Field show. The Pirates decided to pull their right-field walls into Lord Greenberg, affectionately naming the section Greenberg Gardens to entice him to play another season. They also offered him $100,000 to come to the Berg the first time to break the 100 k threshold. $100,000 in 1947 is akin to $13.5 million today in 2024. And throughout his tenure with the Tigers, Greenberg had been a tough negotiator when it came to talking turkey. So, he was most appreciative towards the Buckos and the overtures they made, signaling their desire for him to come and play for them. And the biggest beneficiary of Greenberg's arrival was a young pirate slugger named Ralph Kiner. He led the NL in home runs his rookie year with 23 big flies, but he also led the circuit in strikeouts with 109. He was powerful and gifted, but he was raw and undisciplined at the dish. And Hank immediately took Kiner under his wing and began to mentor the young phenom, teaching him the finer points to bring major league consistency to his promising game. And Kiner would always say, he was the most astute hitter I had ever known. Ralph would go on to smash 369 home runs in his Hall of Fame career, and he never struck out over 90 times again in his tenure. In his induction Hall of Fame speech, he credited and thanked Greenberg, calling him the biggest influence on my life. Not his career, his life. The biggest thing Hank taught me was that hard work and goes into being a successful big leaguer. As for Greenberg, he hit 25 home runs in 125 games in 1947. Finishing with a lackluster 249 batting average, but his league-leading 104 walks contributed to his 408 OBP. And sidebar here, folks, shit. Looking at the salaries on the front age, uh, pre-agent market this offseason, that's a $24 million player today, right? Like, for real, 25 big flies, 408 OBP, Universal DH. Players get more for a lot less today. <laughs> anyway, where was I? 
The Pirates were god-awful, finishing the year with a 66-92 record. And Hank, he couldn't wait to get out of Pittsburgh, his good friend Connor once noted. Not from the city or the fans, but just the way the club was ran. It frustrated him. There was quite literally no direction for the players. And we were at the very bottom of the National League. Greenberg's final home run came at Forbes Field on September 15th off of Phillies pitcher Charlie Shands. After retiring as a player, Greeny hooks up with his best friend in baseball, Bill Beck, and becomes his GM for the Cleveland Indians. He excelled in this role and was regarded as one of the toughest front office negotiators in baseball. Players would recollect how they would walk into the office feeling great about their career and their re- the numbers on their resume, but when they left, after negotiations with Greenberg, they, they always came away with less money than, than they were asking for and not feeling so great about their abilities to play baseball. <laughs> he managed to put together and develop a nucleus of Indians team that would win 111 games during the regular season, but would lose to Willie Mays and the New York Giants in 1954. His marriage to Carol Gimble, whose family owned the New York department store of the same name, was turning sour. The two had married in 1946, but their past were never really on the same page. Hank was a company man, devoted to the game of baseball. And Carol appreciated arts and music. It's kept show horses. The marriage, it had financial benefits, but very little else. Baseball on highest honor came calling in 1956 when he was forever enshrined in the pantheon of the immortals, along with Red Sox shortstop and manager Joe Cronin. When Vec sold his interest in the tribe and became owners of the White Sox, Hank follows his good friend, become part owner and team VP. In 1959, he and Carol divorced with three children, Glenn, Steve, and Alva, as well as eight grandchildren. Always a calculated investor, Greenberg leaps into the stock market and made millions on Wall Street during the 1960s. He eventually sells his stock in the White Sox, making a great profit, left his Manhattan home for sunny Beverly Hills. And for the most part, he lived a comfortable, happy life. He married Mary Jane Torola, an actress in 1966. In 1983, Greenberg returns to Motown for one of the very few times since he had been released after the 1946 season. And the occasion more than warranted as it had been a long time coming. The, the Tigers planned a ceremony at Tiger Stadium to retire as number five, along with Char- Charlie Carrier as number two. And both players were able to make it smiling and waving to the standing room only crowd. It would be the final time Hank would make a public appearance at the site of his greatest glories as a player. I am very proud, he told the fans. That my name and uniform will be remembered as long as baseball is played in Detroit. It is truly an honor. 
on September 4th, 1986, Hammer and Hank Greenberg died after a secret of lengthy battle with cancer. The night before his death, he and his wife Mary Jo had a dinner party with friends. Hank was holding court the center of attention, making his friends howl with laughter. 24 hours later, the baseball legend was gone. His closest friends had no idea he was even sick. He was alive with a party 24 hours before. He's buried in Hillside Memorial Park in Los Angeles, California. Greenberg is the classic American dream of a story with hard work, brains, and a little luck and some good fortune. A man can overcome his humble beginnings and become the master of his universe. He is the perfect standing bear for the first Jewish baseball superstar. He was smart, he was proud, and he was big enough to make you think twice about slurring his faith. He was baseball Moses, folks. Only the beast, Jimmy Fox, had better numbers as a right-handed slugger out of his generation. And he may have been second to none if all he had to worry about was today's opposing pitcher. He became the first Jewish player inducted into the hall. Despite his incredible hitting acumen, he should be remembered for his pioneering efforts as a player and an owner, paving the way for Jews in the top ranks of Major League Baseball. Whether as a Hall of Famer, playing like Kofax, a successful GM like Al Rosen, or an owner slash commissioner like Bud Selig, it was Hank Greenberg, his fight and courage that laid the path for his tribe. And look, Seamheads, I think this is where I'm going to call it. Get you guys back to your loved ones, patiently waiting for your interpretation. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the journey of Hank Greenberg as much as I certainly enjoyed putting in the work and painting the picture for you. And I promise, freaks, I'll try to be even better next week. I will never charge you nerds for the baseball content here at Back, Backwards K-Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play listen subscription shows. Not now, not never. Information is power, and I want an empowered baseball audience. But, if you could share the show with your CMAT buddies, I'd be most appreciative. Rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't scared. Support my sponsors. That's it. Do those three things, and I'll take over everything else. You can find me on Twitter at back, at back underscore K underscore podcast. Our YouTube channel, TikTok page, is Backwards K Pod. Give me some love, subscribe, that helps. And if you're on Facebook, come on in to my private group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions and join the plot. So, while you get squared away and comfortable on our BKP time travel cho-cho, I can't help but think of all the stats Hank left on the table with his four years of military service keeping the planet safe from a Hitler world order. So, with that in mind, 
Let's take one last look at those impressive stats that are missing four years at least of even more numbers. Let's see, what do we have here? Henry Benjamin Greenberg, born January 1st, 1911 in the Bronx, New York. So, a few days ago, we not only celebrated the new year, happy 2024 everybody, but it was also Hammer and Hank's 111th birthday. Would you mind care for one second? It's kind of sobering for me to remember seeing Hank in interviews and stuff when I was a teenager. Can now that dude is 111 years old? That's insane. And a little scary. Died September 4th, 1986 in Beverly Hills, California. Attended James Monroe High School in the Bronx and attended NYU. Became the 7,129th player to join the MLB fraternity. When he makes his debut versus the Yankees, he goes over one at the age of 19. 13-year baseball career with the Tigers and the Pirates. He missed four years of prime in service of America during World War II. 55.4 wins a pump replacement. 1,395 games played. 6,098 plate appearances. 1,046 runs scored, 1,628 hits, 379 doubles, 71 triples. He had 331 career home runs, but don't forget, he missed four years to military service, and honestly, he could have played longer today with the DH and his 25 home runs for 08 OVP at, at only 36 years old. I quite honestly would earn a million to millions on today's re-agent market. Over 162 game season, which I know they only had 154 back then, but over 162, you're looking at an average of 38 dogs a year. Four more years of that puts him around 120 or more, so he is definitely closer to a 500 home run guy than a 400 home guy, home run guy, even though his final stats without the depth say otherwise. 1,247 RBI, 852 walks to 844 strikeouts, a 159 OVP plus, 3,142 total bases, a 313, 412, 605 slash line, that's fucking beast, and a 1.017 OPS, his 313 batting average the 80th best in the history of the game, that 412 OVP, that's what 34th best ever, the 605 slugging percentage, the ninth best ever behind only Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Lou Gehrig, Mule Suttles, Turkey Stearns, Oscar, Oscar Charleston, Jimmy Fox, and Barry Bonds. That 1.017 OPS is also ninth best in the game's history. 159 OPS plus, it's the 20th best ever. And dude was clutch, baby. Five World Series appearances, two-time champion, 23 games, 101 play appearances, 17 runs, 27 hits, 7 doubles, 2 triples, 5 home runs, 22 RBI, 53 total bases. And a World Series slash line of 304, 424, with a 1.044 OPS. Five-time All-Star, 1935 and 1940 AL MVP. 
1956, after appearing on the Hall of Fame ballot for 10 years, Hank Greenberg receives 85% of votes earned inclusion. Amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamheads of all ages, this is the story of Hank Greenberg. And Freaks, I'll be honest with you. That felt good coming out of my head on the bump today, Freaks. I know this show was a couple of days late, but Kofax ran late, and it has been well-received, so I figured I'd give everyone an extra day to consume his story. It's amazing, the power of Kofax to this day. Thank you for all the kind words. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And next week, we are back on our Tuesday release dates. I promise. So, strap in, everyone. Let's get this old diesel back to Terrapin as we head down this track, preparing to bend space and time. I see the Hank Greenberg story getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirrors. I turn my attention to our never-say-die baseball hydra, and I chop <laughs> the head of that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we'll be taking a deep dive into one of my favorite players as a teenager in the 80s. We're going to talk about the kid, Gary Carter, baby. The Expos were my NL team as a young seaman, and Gary Carter, well, that guy just represented everything I wanted to be as a kid. I can't wait to paint the picture of his remarkable life here at BKP. But y'all know the deal, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Thank you, everyone. Happy New Year. Let's rally around one another, push towards making this the greatest year ever in the history of mankind. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch, they got their noses in a bone, they look bored and unproductive AF. By all means, take those little humans outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one spy session, it's in the archives. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. And as an Oriole fan, I got it great. The dude was a menace, a southpaw demon. I'll see you guys next week with Gary Carter. A lot of expos, those wild Mets teams in the mid-80s. Sounds like fun. Me and my felonious feline of a co-host, Charlie Guns, throwing up our Gunner Hendersons. That's our number twos. As in peace.